0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, Loving Jesus by Loving People. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and meet me in Matthew chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 967 in that Bible, Matthew chapter 4. And we are plugging away through our series that we've called Authentic Becoming Who We Really Are. We're about halfway through the series as of this week and talking about who does God call us to be? Who has God said that we are? Uh, How do we live out of that, out of our identity in Him? And we have been uh, touching each week on uh, a part of our personalities that Christian psychologists and counselors have called the false self. The false self is the person that we put on in order to get through in life. It's the person we project to the world. That because we have sinned, because we are broken, because there is hurt in us and pain and shame and insecurities, we don't want anyone to see what's really going on in here. And so we put on a front. And it's something that every single one of us deals with. And it's uh, it's even understandable. It's not good, but it's understandable that because we've been hurt and because we are broken, we don't want anyone to get close to that. So we put up the walls, we put on a mask, and we live out our lives out of this sense of the false self. And I was away at school this past week at seminary. One of my profs is is kind of an expert in this area, if you can be an expert. And she just said, the thought of taking off the mask actually is really challenging. And one of her clients said to her once, I know the false self isn't good, but it's the only person I know how to be. And so we've been looking in this series of how do we understand who has God called us to be? Who has he said that we are? So that we can live out of that truth and not out of this wall that we're putting up uh, in order to to keep people away. So I want to show you a short clip here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the temptations that the enemy draws us into to live this way in the false self. So there's a short video on temptation uh, as taught to us by cute little kids. So please enjoy. Weren't you so rooting for that one little boy the whole time? I showed that a couple years ago, and uh, obviously cute and adorable, uh, talk about the nature of temptation ultimately, which is that when there is temptation, which all of us will face, the temptation is real, right? If, if sin was not tempting, we would have no problem resisting it. But if the nature of temptation is that something is being offered that actually looks like it will do something good for us, the nature of temptation is something is on the table, which actually looks like it will fulfill something in us. And from the very beginning, uh, we looked at this in the first week, Adam and Eve in the garden, the Bible says says that they were naked in the garden. They felt no shame. They were were authentic. They were vulnerable. They were open before God. They were innocent. They were open with one another. There were no barriers or division. But temptation came. And the nature of the temptation was, hey, there's something here that is going to do you good. And that was a lie. It didn't do any of the good that Satan promised. But they fell into sin. And the Bible says right away, if you remember, they start covering up And We have been covering up ever since we have been doing whatever we can to make sure that nobody knows what our sins are What our insecurities are what our brokenness is we don't want anyone to get close to us And so we cover up and we are talking through this series about how can we be aware of this more? And how can we uh, lay down those barriers a little bit more? So let's take a look at our text today We're in Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness and we're starting right in verse 1 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he was without sin. Jesus endured the same temptations that face us every day, but he managed to avoid falling into the trap that we often fall into. And so because of that, because Jesus has lived this human life as we live it, even being tempted as we are tempted, because of that, we can learn a lot from him in terms of how did he withstand his temptation? How did he persevere and press through and not get caught up in the trap? And so it's important for us to know as we go through this, we're going to look at how Jesus got through it But right before this happens in Matthew's Gospel, we're in Matthew chapter 4, at the tail end of Matthew chapter 3, we're not going to read through it, but you can see it there in your Bibles, it's the baptism of Jesus. And so Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and as he is baptized, uh, if you remember the story, he comes up out of the water, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the Father in heaven speaks. Father, Son, and Spirit all coming together in this incredible moment in real time, in a real place. And as Jesus comes out of the water and the Spirit descends, the Father speaks over his life and says to Jesus, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Wouldn't be great to hear God that clearly as he talks about you? Jesus hears these words, and others do as well. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus, he gets his identity affirmed by God. Jesus, at his baptism, gets his identity affirmed by God. You are my son, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you. Jesus is hearing from God. This is who God says you are. And that's going to become important. That's going to be a key part of what helped Jesus navigate the temptation. Uh, Because we often talk about how he used scripture, and we'll talk about that today. That is true. But it wasn't just about Jesus using scripture. Jesus had his identity affirmed because when Jesus went into the desert, what's Satan's first line every time he tries to tempt him? If you are the Son of God, if you really are, the Son of God. Like, he's attacking that identity right away. Jesus just heard from God. Jesus knows who he is, but it's just been affirmed, you are my son, and I love you. Satan's like, if you are the son, there's an attack on his identity happening, if you really are. And it's subtle, but it is really, I think, the nature of a lot of our own sin struggle. If we don't know who we are in Christ, falling into sin is much, much easier. If we know who we are and we're strong in that, then we're going to have strength that's not just because we're strong, but because we know who we are in him, temptation becomes a lot easier to resist. And so as we look at what Jesus did as he navigated through the desert, uh, the three temptations have been interpreted lots of different ways in church history, lots of scholars and teachers have weighed in. I'm just going to present one way of looking at them. I'm not saying it's the right way or it's the best way, but one way to look at these temptations. And it comes from a man named David Benner, who was a Christian psychologist, and he wrote a lot on identity. And so this, uh, these three things were how he uh, looked at the three temptations and what we can learn from them. So the nature uh, of the temptations through Benner's eyes are these three lies that we can all fall into. And the three lies are I am what I do, I am what others think, and I am what I have. When my identity is driven by this, I can get into all kinds of trouble. If my identity is that I am what I do, and I am what others think, and I am what I have, I can get into all kinds of trouble. And so we're going to look at each of these things with some detail as we go through. So first of all, I am what I do. Uh, First temptation starting in verse 2 after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry Matthew tells us really important obvious things sometimes that makes sense, right? He's fasting for 40 days He's hungry the tempter Satan came to him and said if you are the son of God. Do you hear it? If you really are maybe you're not maybe you're not who you think you are Maybe I don't think you are who you think you are if you really are then tell these stones to become bread Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it doesn't sound like an unreasonable temptation, right? And sometimes the enemy's temptations are just that way. they sound very reasonable. He's fasting, we fast because we're pressing into God. we fast because we're looking for answers. we fast because we're looking for breakthrough. He's on a mission on a mission from God and with God and so he's fasting. Satan's trying to get him to break the fast. And you think after 40 days, having a bite to eat is not that big a deal. There are stones to become bread. If you're the Son of God, you can do whatever you want. If you're the Son of God God, you have power. Use that power. Use that power for yourself. Use that power to meet that need. Use your power. Do something if you really are the Son of God. There is a push to do something. If, you're, if you are the Son, prove it by your doing. Prove it by what you can accomplish, in particular, what you can accomplish for yourself. Uh, Jesus will have none of it. Jesus knows he's on a mission. He's not going to be dissuaded. Uh, We'll come back to that in a second. But there is something in us that when we were created, we were created for work. Uh, That even before the fall happened, we were to take care of the Garden of Eden. We were to rule over creation with the Lord. Work itself is not a bad thing. But like everything else that is a part of us, that sense within us got broken when we fell, and our sin makes it broken. And so work now can become a very unhealthy thing. And, and it can be everything from the workaholic who does 80 hours a week, or it can be even in church life, where if I don't serve here, if I don't do that, if I don't meet that need, if I don't meet that person, if I don't do it, no one will do it. We can be so driven by what we do that it becomes who we are in our minds. I am what I do. I am valuable because of what I do. I am important to the church or important to uh, my company or important to my family because of what I can accomplish. And again, the work itself is not the problem. But if I'm looking for my sense of fulfillment as a human being based on the works, based on my accomplishments, based on what I can do, then the problem with that is you can never do enough. There is never enough work you can accomplish to get that sense of security and peace. You just can't, because whatever you accomplish, there will always be more to accomplish. There will never be an end to the work. This is where Sabbath rest becomes so important, that God says one day a week, you put all efforts at work down, and you rest. And partly that just makes sense in terms of oh our bodies need a break our minds need a break our stress level needs a break and and that's good It's refreshing but part of it is that we humble ourselves in Sabbath rest and we say you know what the world will spin without me if I don't do X Y Z Uh, I I can take a break from that, because even though I love what I do, or even though my work is important, uh, my work will still be there 24 hours from now. I can take a break from that, and, and my pride can be okay with that. Because God himself took a day off, right? He did his creating, and then on the seventh day he took a rest, and in what is a most obvious statement, you're not better than God. God took a rest. We can take a rest. And part of taking a rest beyond just personal refreshing is just to continually remind ourselves that we are not indispensable, right? The world will carry on without us. Part of this gospel that we revere is based on this very idea that you can't do enough to make things right with God. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you pour your life into it, you can never do enough to earn your way to heaven. You can never do enough to get right with God. You can never do enough to undo the sin that you have also been working at and doing. You can never do enough. That's the heartbeat of this gospel, because when we couldn't do enough, when we couldn't save ourselves, God sent us a Savior. When we were helpless, and when it was impossible to do enough to make things right, God looked at us and said, you don't have to do anything. My son will come and do anything. Everything to save your soul and to bring you back into communion with God. And so we know this, of course. That's kind of basic gospel. If you've been around church, you've heard that before, that you couldn't do anything to get right with God. And yet, again, there is just this broken part of us that feels, if I can just do this, if I can accomplish this, if I can build this, if I can expand this, and it just doesn't work. You see, you know, billionaires of, you know, huge multinational corporate empires And they still talk of, oh, we just need to get there, and then we'll accomplish everything I want. Like, there's just always more to do. And so if I'm getting my sense of purpose based on what I can do, what I can accomplish, I am just going to be exhausted all the time. Trying to keep that false self up is exhausting. And and to actually put my energy into, uh, I want everyone to see what I can accomplish. I want everyone to see how valuable I am by how hard I work or how much I can get done. Like, it's just exhausting. It will always fall short. As Jesus is going through his temptation in the desert, uh, as we often talk about when we teach on this passage, his, his main weapon is scripture. And the Bible says the scripture is like a sword. It is the sword of the spirit. And so when Satan comes with the temptation, Jesus fights back with the word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's just good in any, you know, spiritual warfare, or even in your prayer time. Uh, it is a powerful thing to pray the scripture. It's a powerful thing to declare the scripture. It's a powerful thing to to learn the scriptures that surround your particular sin struggle and speak those when temptation comes. If we're gonna overcome temptation, we have to know the word. You can't quote the word if you don't know the word. You can't fight with the word if the word is not already in there. And so we need to be in the word for sure. The word is our weapon. But there is another side of this as well. Jesus was able to resist because he knew the word of the Lord. But Jesus was able to resist because he knew who he was. He knew his identity. Again, he had just been baptized right before this happened. He heard God say, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And at this point, uh, when it comes to the things that Jesus has done for God, that he has done to advance the kingdom, that he's done for the mission, at this point, when God says this, Jesus has done absolutely nothing. He has not done a thing. He has not preached a sermon. He has not healed a body. He has not uh, encountered a demon and driven a demon out. He has not performed a miracle. He has not done a single thing. Jesus has done nothing. And yet the Father speaks over him and says, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you. So obviously to get that kind of blessing from God, you don't got to do a lot because Jesus did nothing. And I can say this as a dad, because when my kids were born, uh, you know, Kaylee was born, and Matthew was born, I was there in the room, and they came out, and I loved them instantly. And to be honest, they didn't bring a lot to the table at that point, for, for quite some time, to be honest. If anything, they were needy and super clingy. But I loved them not because of what they did for me. I loved them because they were mine. I loved them because I loved them. I loved them because, because they had come from, from me and my wife. I loved them because they were this gift. I loved them just because I loved them. They didn't earn my love. They didn't earn it through their doing. Uh, as they've grown, they do more now. And it's, it's, a, it's great. Like, there's a great interaction. But even then, my love for them is not conditional on what they do for me. I love them just because I love them. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here Jesus hasn't done anything yet but God says I love you I am pleased with you you're my son the father loves him just because he's his son and that is true for you and me as well he loves us just because he loves us he doesn't need us to do anything right if I got hit by a bus tomorrow The world would carry on. You'd miss me, I hope, but the world would carry on. The church would carry on. He doesn't need me to fulfill his purposes. And and that God would need anything goes completely contrary to the idea of God. God being God has no need of us, and that's the truth of the gospel. He doesn't need anything from us in order to save us. But the beauty of the gospel is even though he doesn't need us, he wants us. He loves us. Not because of what we do, him. So we need to find this balance of what work and and, and our works can be in our lives. Hard work is not a problem. Serving others is not a problem. But when it becomes that's how I get my fulfillment and that is who I am, then that becomes a very real problem. What's the first question we ask a stranger when we meet them for the first time? What do you do? How do you identify yourself based on what you do? It's a common question. But that's not who you are. That's just what you do. And so in terms of practically navigating this, beyond just being aware of this and trying to notice this in our lives, uh, it's just good advice for us to slow down at times. Just to say, you know what, I don't have to do everything. If I don't do something, the world will spin. If I don't meet that person, someone else can meet that person. If I don't jump into that need, someone else can meet that need. And it's not that we don't work hard, and it's not that we don't do it unto the Lord and unto one another. Serving is great. Helping is great. Uh, But that's not who we are. That's just what we do. Who we are is a child of God who loves us in spite of what we've done, right? In spite of the bad stuff we've done and in spite of the good stuff we've done that isn't enough. He loves us anyway just because we're his kids and our identity needs to be grounded there first and foremost. All right, first temptation. we got to truck along here. Second temptation, I am what others think. Verse 5, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan is amping up his game now. Now Satan is using Scripture to try to convince Jesus of things. Uh, Jesus, of course, knows the Scripture better, right? Because he's the one who wrote that Scripture, so he is not tricked. But it's a good reminder that... uh, when it comes to understanding scripture, interpreting scripture, we always do that in community. We don't ever do that just entirely by ourselves. And the reason we don't do it entirely by ourselves is because it's really easy if I'm reading the Bible that I just start to make it mean what I think it should mean, right? I start to read myself into it. Uh, When we do it as a community, we can avoid that. And so we don't just uh, take it at face value when someone says, this is what I think the Bible says, even if I say that. Uh, You should always be looking to the Bible yourself and digging in yourself, and, and we just do this as a group and that's going to help keep us safe from misunderstanding so Satan is after Jesus again and Benner called this temptation I am what others think Uh, I have not figured this out myself but someone has done the math on this and they've changed cubits and all those you know weird Bible measurements into modern measurements and said the highest point of the temple at this time was around 15 stories high so if you can picture that, I think we have a couple of apartment buildings in Leamington that might be up there in the 15-story range. Like, that's high. That's not a, a little ledge he's being challenged to jump off of. Uh, there's this 15-story high tower at the front of the temple, and Satan is saying, throw yourself down. And, and again, lots of reasons why. Some think he's just trying to get Jesus to kill himself, uh, or, and some think he's trying to do other things. But, uh, but the interpretation here that we're looking at today is that Uh, Henry Nouwen called this one the temptation to be popular because the thing about the temple is Jerusalem is a very busy city and it was always busy and the temple is a very busy spot in the city there were always people around there are priests there around the clock but especially during the day there were worshipers moving in and out the temple is a very 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 public place and so if Jesus throws himself off the temple like he can't he can't die there right he has to go to the cross And so I really think if Jesus had jumped, that word of the Lord would have been fulfilled, where the angels would have shown up and grabbed him, because Jesus could not die in that way. That was not what God had planned for him. So if Jesus, in this very public place, jumps off, you know, 15 stories, falls 15 stories down, hundreds of people are watching it, and then all of a sudden he stops right here in midair, and whether you see angels holding him or whether he's just there in midair, that's a spectacle, right? Like, that is a sight to see. And everybody's going to know this Jesus is someone special. We have never seen this before. Everyone's going to know that Jesus is spectacular, that Jesus has powers. Everyone's going to know that Jesus is something special, and I imagine are going to fall on their knees and start worshiping him right away. But when Jesus walked this earth, there was nothing in him that was trying to draw attention to himself. Jesus, actually quite the opposite. Jesus would heal someone and then say, shh, don't tell anyone what I just did. And Jesus would say in John's Gospel, I'm not here to glorify myself. I'm not here to draw attention to myself. I only want to bring glory to the Father in heaven my whole life. So Jesus was always under the radar, always pointing the glory up to heaven, never wanting to draw attention to himself. And so this temptation is the opposite of all that. If you jump and there's a big spectacle display of angelic power, everyone's going to know who you are, everyone's going to revere you, everyone's going to follow you, and, and Jesus just went, that's not actually what I'm called to do. But there can be something in us that gets very drawn to that kind of thinking, maybe not obviously in that extreme, don't go jumping off buildings anytime soon, but this fo- the focus on I am what others think. can happen a few different ways one is uh, we've all had things said to us that weren't true right and and sometimes that happens when we're kids or on the playground or from our parents even or a teacher uh, hurtful things that just aren't true and we can start to take those in like when these things happen when we're kids we're not smart enough when we're little I don't mean that in a bad way we're just not we have not developed enough we're not wise enough to discern that, you know, when that angry adult said that horrible thing into our lives, you know, at six years old, you can't say, well, they were just mad, they didn't mean that, that's not true. Like, you take it as truth. And so we can bear these wounds, that, especially when we're young, but it can happen any time, where someone says something about us, and it might not be true, but it sticks. And we start to say, that's, that's who I am. And we start to live out of that way. The other side of this, the flip side of that, is when we are living into the praise of other people when we're living into the praise, to the applause, to the compliments, to the encouragements, when we are looking for that and living for that. Uh, When Ed Heinrichs was here uh, back in January, he talked about studies he was reading that says, you know, on social media, if you post a picture up and it gets lots of likes and lots of comments, your brain releases dopamine, which is the pleasure chemical of the brain. Like, it feels really good, and like other things that we chase after that release dopamine, it actually becomes addictive, and we start chasing it more and more. And so we can live in a bad way out of bad things people have said to us, and that becomes part of our false self that isn't true. Uh, If those things have happened, we pray through those words. Sometimes with a counselor, we work through the hurt of that. Uh, We can find freedom and healing from those things. The other side of it, where we're chasing after encouragement, or chasing after likes, or chasing after applause, Uh, it's a lot easier to fall into and and out of our insecurity we can say well I want all this encouragement and likes because that makes my insecurity feel better right and again like with the last temptation the problem is there will never be enough encouragement that is enough to solve the problem there will just never be enough it's a temporary buzz until the next time I feel insecure and the next time I feel insecure all of that buzz goes away and as that goes away i got to chase more and it just becomes this exhausting cycle of trying to live in such a way that i'm i am you know wanting that encouragement depending on that encouragement now in light of these two things everybody needs correction sometimes from other people we all need that we have blind spots we can't see we need someone to speak into our lives for correction and I would say everybody also needs encouragement everyone needs a boost everyone needs to be pulled along and so them in themselves are not necessarily bad things but when they go too extreme one way or another again when I'm getting all my self-worth all of my sense of who I am out of what other people say for better or for worse and I'm living out of my false self. And, and we don't want to be letting that drive our lives. As Jesus goes through this, again, he fights back with Scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. So we want to know the Word. We want to be in the Word so we can quote the Word in these moments. But again, not just the Word, but identity. Jesus knew who he was. He was not thrown off. Jesus knew, I don't have to jump off and be spectacular because I am God's Son. He loves me and he's pleased with me. Uh, what he had heard at the baptism. And as Jesus knows I am God's son and I am loved and he is pleased with me, uh, he doesn't need to show off. He doesn't need people's affirmation and he's not dissuaded by people's criticism. When Jesus lives his life and criticism comes, he's not phased even a little bit. And when Jesus is living his life and people come praising him, like when they start praising him too much, he says, Bye, guys, I got to get out of here. And he slips out of the way. So Jesus was not phased by criticism, nor was he drawn to too much encouragement. Jesus lived his life knowing who he was and being grounded there. Encouragement is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a spiritual gift, and we are called to do it to one another. But if that's driving my life—and I can say this with some authority, because of the three, this has always been the one that I've struggled the most with. If it's starting to drive our lives, if it's becoming a thing where, uh, you know, where I can't feel fulfilled, or I can't feel confident, or I can't feel like I'm accomplishing things, if I don't have X Y and Z uh, encouragement from other people then that's where it becomes problematic because if I want to be like Jesus then I should be able to be secure enough in a way that if you criticize me I'm okay with that and if you encourage me I'm okay with it but I don't need it Uh, that's living in a Christ-like way and Jesus knew who he was before God our identity we cannot put that on other people to make us feel secure that's just not fair Uh, We can help each other out, certainly, but we need to be able to find all of our security in God. Uh, Just some practical application we can seek encouragement and also challenges from people that we trust if we're just running after the good stuff we're missing out if we're just wallowing in the criticism that's not good either but we all need encouragement sometimes we all need challenges sometimes and it's best when it comes from people that we trust because there have been people in our lives maybe who have spoken things that aren't good and we don't need to go running to them for things but to have people who can do both sides too much encouragement is flattery too much criticism is just cynicism we're trying to find the sweet spot of the balance of those Last one, I am what I have. Third temptation, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Jesus has had enough, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So all the kingdoms of the world were meant to be ours. They were meant to be Adam and Eve's from the beginning, right? You rule over all of this with God there. Uh, with him in relationship with him but Satan stole that in the fall it got broken authority became his the world became where he lives and everything got corrupted under his domain so Adam and Eve lost it for us and we've all made the same mistakes Uh, but in in Adam and Eve through man the the whole thing fell now when Jesus came and he rose from the dead at the end of Matthew's gospel Jesus says now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me so the authority that Adam lost is authority that Jesus has taken back. And so lost through a man, restored through a man, and much more than a man. But what Satan is doing here is a couple of things. He's, he's offering Jesus the world because it, it is Satan's to offer. The systems, the, the cities, the people of this world are all under Satan's domain. And he's saying, I can give this to you. Like, I, I have the authority to pass this off to you. But what he's really getting at is this is a shortcut with no cross for Jesus. Because Jesus was called to rule over the nations. The Messiah was going to come and rule over the nations. Jesus is going to get the nations anyway. Jesus is going to do that. What Satan's saying is, I can give it to you right now with no suffering, no, no whipping, no betrayal, no nails, no blood, no death. I can give you this now. But Jesus, again, sees the end result, says, no, I have come only to do the will of the Father, and I will not do this in the shortcut way, uh, which is tempting for all of us. But Satan is offering him, you know, the wealth of the nations, the, the titles, the prestige, the, the everything that goes with lordship. And Jesus says, I'm going to win my lordship the right way by going through what the Father tells me to go through. And there is something in us, again, it's just so natural to chase after the things of this world. To chase after title, to chase after prestige, to chase after money, to chase after things. And you don't have to be wealthy for this to be a problem. Uh, anybody can get caught up. Uh, Jesus said, you know, the other God, mammon, money, the, the other draw. It's, it doesn't mean you can be dirt poor. And if all your thoughts and time are consumed with thoughts of money and how to make more, then you're falling victim to the same thing. So don't think this is just something for the you know the the Jeff Bezos of the world who have all this and are buying all these things. Anybody can fall victim to this. There was a study done uh, in America a number of years ago, and they they wanted to see where is where would people feel financially secure. And so they went to all these different income brackets, uh, starting I think it was thirty thousand dollars up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and they went to each bracket and they said how much more money would you need to feel secure, to feel solid and financially secure. And basically what they found, as they interviewed all these different groups, was everybody in every income strata said, uh, if we had about 20 grand more, we would feel secure. So the people making 30 grand, they said, if we could just make 50 grand, then we would feel, oh, we just take the edge off, we would feel more confident, more secure. But then when they talked to the people who made 50 grand, they said, well, if we could just make 70 grand, once we hit 70 grand, then everything will just feel better. And then the people who made 70 grand, they said, if we could just make 90 grand, like all the way up to even the people making 150 grand, if we could just make 170, then we would feel that just our problems would be solved. And so it was just an interesting exercise in that, like the other two temptations, the problem with chasing this one is that no amount of anything will ever be enough. There will always be more. To, to get, There will always be a place of greater wealth or greater possessions or greater prestige where we feel like if I can just get there, then I'll be set. But when you get there, there is another horizon to start reaching for. So it doesn't work. And that's the thing with all of these things, the temptation to, to lean into. I am what I do, or I am what others think, or I am what I have. The nature of temptation is it looks good, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so we exhaust ourselves chasing these things, looking for fulfillment, and, and it just doesn't work. And it's not that there's a problem with money in itself, just like there's not a problem with working in itself or encouragement in itself. But when our, our seeking after money, our seeking after things, our seeking after titles, uh, whatever it is, when that becomes who we are, when that becomes how I feel fulfilled as a human being, when that becomes the driving force of things, that's when we know the false self is, is fully at work and we're wanting to lay this stuff down. So our security is never going to come from what we have or, or what we don't have. Jesus fights back with Scripture. Again, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, fear the Lord God and serve him only. So again, as we're navigating sin and temptation, we need to know the word. And again, we need to know who we are. Because Jesus heard, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. For Jesus, that was enough. Jesus was poor. Jesus had nothing. He never had a home. He said the foxes have a home and the birds have a home. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He lived this life of simplicity and poverty and was content there. And our goal uh, as Christ followers should never be just how do I get more? How do I get more? Because the Apostle Paul said, you know what? I have learned the secret to being content no matter what I'm facing. Whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, whether things are going well, things are going difficult, there is a contentment that comes in knowing I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know my identity in Christ. And so I can be at peace no matter how much I have or how little I have. And I'm not going to waste my life and my energy chasing after things that ultimately will never bring me to fulfillment. It just won't get me there. We all always remember the Bible talks about, Jesus talks about, we build our treasures in heaven. Uh, And so again money is not the problem having a lot of money maybe isn't even the problem But as long as we are living out this in a godly way We are not letting it drive who we are or why we feel successful or what makes us accomplished or anything like that We're remembering what the Bible says We are tithing and we are sharing and we are being generous and we are being sacrificial and we are putting others needs ahead of ourselves uh, Then we can find a better balanced way in which we can navigate this come on up worship team We're just about done here We have an email address uh, at the church, questions at meadowbrook.ca. We'd be happy to answer any questions. If you want to keep this conversation going, we'd be happy to be a part of that. As we talk about this false self, it's a new idea, I know, for a lot of us, and it's going to be one, like, long after the series is done. I think we're still going to be kind of processing this and thinking this through. There's only so much we can do uh, in eight or nine weeks. But if my life is driven by what I do, if my life is driven by what others think, if my life is driven by what I have or what I don't have and that I want, then then I'm living out of this falseness that will never bring me to fulfillment. It just, it won't, it can't. Because our fulfillment, our identity, our security only comes from knowing who we are in him and knowing how He relates to us. There's a reason we built this up the last few weeks. We wanted to start off just focusing on sort of foundational identity. We are made in the image of God. We are lavishly loved by God. And we are set free from our sin and made holy in God. Like, that is who we are. And so to be able to be aware of these things and say, okay, where am I chasing after things? Where am I letting my work into an unhealthy place in my life? Where am I chasing after the praise of men or or frustrated when I don't get the praise of men? Where am I noticing this in my life? And, And where can I start to be aware of that and go, okay, I'm not gonna look to things or people or tasks to fulfill me, to tell me who I am. I'm gonna look to Jesus, Lord, who do you say I am? How do I find my security in you? As we do that, these walls start to come down. As we do that, we start to live out the way we were always supposed to live, the way Jesus lived, who got through his temptation by knowing the Word of God and by knowing who he was in God. That's what kept him safe. And we want to follow in his example, of course, as we do in all things. We're going to worship for a couple of minutes before we go, reminding ourselves that God doesn't need us, we're the ones who need him. But he still loves us and he has still died for us and he has still called us and we want to worship him in gratitude. So would you stand with me, please? The words will be up on the screen. We encourage
1: you to sing along. As we think about our lives and we think about that word self, uh, it's important to understand that as we think about our lives, that in order to get past self, that we focus on Jesus. And it's a great reminder that our identity doesn't come into the things but it comes in our identity, it comes in Jesus Christ. And as we think about that today, perhaps the Lord has put something on your heart that you need to pray through. Uh, And we encourage you to come forward after service is done. There'll be people here up front that are trained and want to sit with you and pray with you and encourage you as well. So as people are leaving, if you want to come for prayer, please do that. And as people are coming forward to receive prayer, if you want to connect and hang out, please do that in the foyer and down the hallway as well. And on a reminder too, If there's somebody here that you've never met before, new to you, uh, go ahead and meet them as well. It's a good way to, to finish off church as we head into this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for who you are in our lives. And we ask you continue to help us to focus on who you are. And when we enter those places where it's just about self, that Father, you'd help us to focus on you. So Lord, thank you for your word as well.